The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. Today we have a special guest also, John Benko, the founder of the Four Persons Blog Talk Radio channel. And we're going to be discussing uh, common questions or challenges to the Catholic faith. And uh, we'll give our answers to help other people better understand the Catholic faith and know how to defend it. Are you there, John? I'm here. Great. So, the first question I have comes from my friend Namasawa, in, who's in Africa, and he asks, How did St. Paul come to know such rich theology? Was there vigorous training as the church does nowadays? And so here's my answer. The Jewish religion was passed on by the rabbis to their students. Catholic Christianity is an evolution of Judaism, and Paul was a student of one of the greatest rabbis, Gamaliel. He was also aware of the teachings of Jesus, even though he rejected them at first. Also, the Holy Spirit revealed God's teachings to Paul after his conversion. Since Paul was the student of a rabbi, he knew how to explain the faith to others, so he wrote letters to the churches he founded and others to give them guidance. This is how Paul became the author of 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Neither Galatians 1.17 nor Acts 9.19-25 give us all the details about Paul's experiences in Arabia and Damascus in the period immediately following his conversion. But we do know some, of course, that the apostle preached in many of the synagogues in Damascus, as shown in Acts chapter 9, and it would not be a stretch to assume he did the same in Arabia. Undoubtedly, Paul also spent time in prayer and study, and in, and it may be that Jesus appeared to him several more times, um, as shown in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. The years to which Paul refers to in today's passage of Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, began when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus and included and include his sojourn to in Arabia and his ministry in the Syrian city. Thus, Paul was a mature believer when he met Cephas, um, known as Peter, James, the brother of the Lord, in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 1, that's where he writes about how he went to Jerusalem to learn the faith from Peter and James and John. The contrast between 
Paul's 15-day stay in the Holy City and the three years he was on his own reveals that he did not go there to learn the gospel or have James or Peter appoint him as an apostle. He was already serving as an apostle. Remember that Paul was dealing with false teachers who was undermining his authority, claiming that the other apostles commissioned him, not the Savior himself. The Judaizers probably knew that Paul visited Jerusalem while his con after his conversion and likely claimed he received his call there. Paul is setting the record straight, indicating that his visit was too short for him to have learned his gospel from Peter and James. But he went to Jerusalem to make sure that he was teaching the right teaching. Uh, because even though he received revelation from Jesus through the Holy Spirit, uh, he didn't know, he wanted to make sure that he was teaching the same thing as the rest of the guys. Of the various Greek words for visit that are used, you know, to use when Paul went to visit Jerusalem, um, Let's see. Yeah. But basically, Paul went there, you know, not so much to get commissioned as an apostle, but to make sure that he had the right information and was teaching it properly. Anything else you want to add to that? Yeah. It, you know, there's not one answer in, to this question. So there's a couple of different vantage points I'd like to go from. First of all, I'm in the building. Uh, trades, field, building engineering, that type of thing. And one of the analogies that I really like to use is, let's, let's just say that you walked into a building for the very first time, that you physically walked into that building. But prior to walking into that building, you thoroughly studied the blueprints of that building and knew them backwards and forwards. But what would happen is when you walked in a building, you would immediately start to recognize things that you saw in the blueprints. This is, mm -hmm. oh, this hallway goes down this way, and then it turns, and then there's a kitchenette, and then there's, uh, opens up into the lobby, or what have you. You'd recognize it because you saw it in the blueprints. Well, that's the way the Old Testament and the New Testament work. The Old Testament is the blueprints. It shows what the Davidic kingdom will look like. It shows what the church will look like. And Paul was very versed in the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. And like you said, he had, uh, he had studied under Gamaliel. And so he knew that, that part of it. Now, so when he, when he saw, when he got the revelation from God and saw what the uh, Messiah's kingdom looked like, he immediately connected the dots. So that's one aspect of it is he had the foundation. The other aspect of it is what he learned from the other apostles. But the other aspect of it, the last final aspect of it is what we see in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is talking to Peter and says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father who is in heaven. Direct revelation. The guidance of the Holy Spirit. When you look at all of these things working in one person, well, then it, it makes sense that he's going to become a leader. He's going to become at the forefront of the church. And this is the charism that we call infallibility. And that's why we believe that, we, that the Pope is the active authority in the church today because this same charism, this same phenomenon is at work, the Holy Spirit guiding him. He's got the foundation, he's got the knowledge, he's got the education, he's got the history, but he's also got the current guidance of the Holy Spirit moving him in the right direction. Right. That sounds great. And, and that's a great analogy in that, you know, Paul already knew the blueprints of how, you know, how to run a religion, basically. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, think that you know, um, Christianity is, you know, just based on the New Testament. 
but Christianity evolved out of the Judaism of the first century. And right. so the first Christians were all Jews. So it would be like walking in that building and you hear the air conditioning running, you see the lights on, but you have no idea how it's working. You don't have no idea about the wiring that's behind the walls and the ductwork that's above the ceiling and you have no idea how it works, how it's put together. Uh, so you really can't understand what's going on. All you know is, you know, it, it was hot and now it's cool or it was dark and now it's light, but you have no idea how it's working unless you know the blueprint. Right. Okay, so um, let's move on to the next one here. This comes from my friend Kashif over in Pakistan, and uh, this is a question that was proposed to him that he passed on to me. And it is, how does one avoid falling into legalism? So the first thing we might want to do is uh, define the word legalism and that uh, Jesus and the church calls us to live a certain way as Christians. And some people get all caught up in making sure they follow all the rules without actually having the love of Jesus in their heart to really live the loving life that Jesus calls us to. They're so caught up in doing the things that they forget about, you know, the internal life that we're supposed to be living. Like, they might say the prayers, but they're not using those prayers to draw closer to God. Or they're, you know, um, say tithing 10% of their income to the church, but they're actually holding back a lot of extra money just for themselves. They're not actually living the faith. It's it's a very you have to balance it between doing what the church calls us to do and living the faith as Jesus calls us to. So if you're real sloppy in your prayer life, you can you know maybe develop a personal relationship with Jesus but it's easily going to fall into a personal relationship on your own terms and not God's terms mm -hmm. so that's why the church teaches that we both have to you know pray the prayers live the life as the church calls us to you know make sure you get to church on Sunday or maybe uh Saturday night but also to live the faith in between Sundays, you know, inside and outside of Mass. So the key, I, this is like my answer to him, the key is what your intention is as we do what calls us to do. Jesus taught that we have to do many things. If we just do them out of obligation instead of out of love, then we have fallen into legalism. God loves a happy giver. We live as Jesus calls us to out of love for him like a child who wants to please his parents. God is not a vending machine where we put in our duty and automatically get blessings from God. Like, you know, some people think if they pray for something, then God owes them that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way it works. <laughs> Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, sometimes exactly the opposite is the case. Sometimes you pray for years and years and years and your prayers uh, seem you don't get answered. Um, and there, and there's no solid equation that I can can, can give because sometimes uh, I've seen people's prayers seemingly not answered when what they were asking for seemed, you know, reasonable. They weren't asking for anything that uh, you know was was uh, they, you know they weren't asking for a new Ferrari. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but we, you know, we don't understand how all that works. Now, going back to the question, you're correct in saying that, you know, the difficulty you give us in asking a question like this is you're asking us to define the, the term that you're using. You, you, you ask us how we define legalism, but you don't give us a definition. Uh, and there's a broad spectrum on how people define legalism. Uh, some people define legalism as simply following the Ten Commandments is legalism. They believe that we don't have to, there's nothing we have to do, there's nothing that we're required to do. 
So I'm going to answer the question in terms of what my understanding of legalism is. Mm -hmm. Legalism is what you had with the Pharisee. It, 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 it's basically hypocrisy. It's going through the motions. Uh, this is what Paul railed about when he talked about the works of the law. Those who were boasting because they were keeping the works of the law. The Pharisee that's in the temple saying, Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me like this tax collector over here. Uh, you know, I, I tithe 10% of, of, of all my goods. I go to the temple three times a week. You know, all these things that he was saying about himself. Meanwhile, the reprobate just beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. So the answer that I would give to your question is keys are obedience and humility. Obedience and humility. That's, that's what it all boils down to. Do your yeah. actions spring from a, from, from a willingness to be obedient, a willingness to be humble, a willingness to be loving, forgiving, merciful, or are you checking boxes? Uh, you know, and, and the, you know, wise man once said, many people praise Jesus with their words and curse him by their actions. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, we, you know, we see a lot of that going on. But a lot of times, it's, you may be doing all the right things. You may be checking all the right boxes. But you don't have love, the love of God in your heart. You're not loving towards your neighbor. You're not merciful for your neighbor. And I would just, you know, caution you. To remember the words of Jesus. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. So to avoid legalism, love your neighbor. Right. And you're right about the Pharisees. You know they were they were trying to get all the Jews to stop stop sinning for like half an hour because they had an interpretation of the Old Testament that said that. If the Jews would just stop sinning, then the Messiah would come. So they added all kinds of extra rules to the 713 rules from the book of um, Leviticus and uh, to really help keep the Jews from sinning. And all they did was make it harder for the Jews to live their lives, and they would get caught up in you know, washing the pots and, you know, keeping things, you know, extra separated and things like that. And, uh, you know, right. like not doing any kind of work on the Sabbath, you know, at all. Right. Meanwhile, the man who's been beaten and robbed is lying in the middle of the, of, of, of the, of the street while they walk on, on by. And the man has to be tended to by a Samaritan. You know, this is the exactly. parable that Jesus is, is illustrating. So, you know, they, they were, you know, lengthening their 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 tassels and and all this stuff and preaching on the, the the street corners and taking the first seat in the synagogue, and yet they've forgotten what truly mattered, and that was the love of God and the love of neighbor. Mm -hmm. So we'll move on to the next question here. Uh, this comes from. Namazwa again in Africa, and he writes, I have issues with countering Eastern Orthodox denial of suffering after death, especially by fire. And so I answered him that the Orthodox churches have a, a variety of, of teachings like Protestants. Um, regretfully, our Orthodox brothers and sisters have over the years, you know, split into different versions of Christianity. And um, so there are some Protestant, or I'm, I'm sorry, Orthodox churches that teach that, you know, after death, there's like toll booths, you know, where they you go through and increase your sanctification so you're properly prepared for heaven. Um, and others have, you know, different, other different ideas. So uh, in a discussion with a, an Orthodox Christian in the past, um, he said that if anybody writes some, something or says something like, you know, this is what the Orthodox Church teaches, 
They're full of baloney because there's a variety of teachings in the various Orthodox churches. Um, but the Orthodox churches, they do believe that we have to be fully sanctified in order to enter heaven. And the process of sanctification they call theosis uh, because you're becoming more like God. And so what you can do is ask any Orthodox person, you know, how do they become fully holy before they enter heaven? Because Revelation chapter 1, 21 tells us that nothing unclean can enter there. So therefore, whatever that person, that Orthodox person describes to you as how you become fully holy to enter heaven, that is the final process of sanctification that we call purgatory in the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church has, over the years, has defined you know many doctrines with our great theologians, whereas the Orthodox churches leave them all kind of fuzzy um, because different <laughs> versions of the of Orthodoxy have different understandings, and they're trying to maintain their unity by not specifically defining things, which is something that's kind of like what Protestants do. You know, they say that they all agree on the uh, the main things about um, Christianity, and then they disagree on the minor things, but it's hard to get Protestants to define the main things that they all agree on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, let, let me deal with your last point first. Uh, the main things argument. I mean, run into Protestants today that don't even believe in the incarnation, don't even believe in, in uh, that that uh, a divine Jesus died on the cross. That's as about as foundational as you can get. So. Uh, and then I would say, you know, when you talk about essential doctrines, well, I, I would consider the Eucharist to be an essential doctrine. The, the Bible is very, very clear on that. Uh, but going back to your friend, he, he asked a lot of questions. I'm just curious as to why he asked so many questions about orthodoxy, why he's looking so closely at orthodoxy. I guess maybe he's debating some, some, some orthodox or, or what have you, but... Your, your observation is correct, Ken. They're almost like precursors to to Protestantism because they've they've lost that bearing, they've lost that that guide, which is the, the Holy Father's Pope, and and the councils that are in uh, communion with the Pope. And this idea of purification after death, this idea of becoming purified in order to enter heaven, well, it's, it's not pleasant to think about. It, I mean, this, this idea of suffering after death in purgatory for, you know, years, decades possibly, you know, in some cases, uh, it's not pleasant to think about. It's, it's um, something that we want to gloss over, and, and Protestants just... They get right past it real quick. Just you say one prayer and you're saved and it's all done, uh, nice, nice and clean. But that's not what Scripture teaches. And you know, I would go further and say this is why the Catholic Church puts so much of, of an emphasis on taking up our crosses, accepting our sufferings, accepting our trials in life, uh, so that we do become purified, we do become godlike in this life and not have to go through the through the, the trial of purgatory. But purgatory is a you know is a real thing and it's, it's something that's very clearly shown in scripture that nothing unpure, nothing unclean can, can enter into heaven. And uh, many people are gonna have to go through that through that purification uh, process uh, after death. And, and it's, it's an act of mercy, Ken, because if there's no purgatory, then anyone with the smallest stain of sin has to go to hell. Uh, that would be a, 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 a greatly worse situation, don't you think? Right. Yes. You know, thank God for purgatory because, yes. you know, I, I try to keep myself clean with God, but, you know, I would really like to have a wedding garment white wedding garment before I enter heaven so 
I don't get thrown and, out. And, and, and let's face it, life is life is difficult. Life is challenging. Life has, you know, people face unbelievable things. I mean, yesterday was September 11th. That's a day I'll never forget as 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 long as I live. And you know, I met with my family the night before, and you know, we talked about whether there's ever a reason to go to war. And and you know, it was my birthday. We were talking about you know just war and all that stuff. And then the next morning, we're attacked. Uh, you know, it, it's life throws those things at you, and those kind of things change people. They change people, and it's very, very difficult not to become angry, to become bitter, to become vengeful when you suffer this horrific tragedy in your family or someone you know or, or what have you. Um, and very few of us are going to get through life with no scars, with, you know, uh, pure and, and completely fully intact. Um, but, you know, thank God he's able to to make up for what we're what we're not able to do, however short we are of reaching the goal, he's he's able to, to bridge that distance and get us over the over the finish line. Amen. Let's see. So here's a uh, another question from Joanne Marie, and she says, "Here is the big question to any Catholic out there: What is more important?" The church or Jesus? And so here's my answer for her. The church is both the building and the members of the body of Christ through baptism. Since the church is Jesus present here on earth, they are both important because they are the same thing. Jesus left his authority with his church, not the Bible the church later assembled. And we hand-copied it for 1,100 years after we assembled the Bible. Yes, the body of Christ has sick members that need to grow in holiness, in the holiness required to enter heaven. But that does not mean that we don't need to listen to the members of the church that have, have had Jesus' authority handed down to them. So the church has the authority from Jesus to guide us in the faith, and we also have the Bible that the church assembled to back up what the church teaches. Uh, in the Catholic Church, we recognize that before we had a New Testament, and even an established Old Testament, we had a church, and the church taught things uh, as Jesus commanded his apostles to go out and teach and baptize everything he taught them. And then, so they went out and did that. And later on, they wrote down some of what they had learned from Jesus. And Paul writes his letters to different churches, giving them guidance. And since Paul wrote good letters of guidance, you know, those get added to the New Testament for future reference, because he's given good guidance. Uh, because, you know, the same problems that were in the churches that he wrote to, you know, end up occurring in other churches too. The, the problems are all over the place. Just like in the book of Revelation, uh, the seven letters to the seven different churches, you know, describes different problems in those different churches. But those problems are, you know, for that time and all through time to our age. So the problems are always there and we always are called back to the correct teaching and we always need to live as holy a life as we possibly can and to do the best to guide our church in the right direction and trust God to keep us from falling so far into error that we're doing the wrong thing. And so the Bible is the written tradition that confirms the oral tradition which came first. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I want to add, um, have you gotten rid of the top secret documents that you were hiding in your bedroom yet? <laughs> uh, nope. <laughs> okay. You, you I don't have any. <laughs> you, you see what I just did there? The question I just asked, Ken, it, it, uh, and, and I love the, that you go on with Gary Machudo because he deals with this a lot. He deals with logical fallacies. The question I just addressed to Ken 
is a logical fallacy known as the false dilemma. And it's a question where I pose a question to you in which there are only two answers. Yes, I did not get rid of the secret documents I had in my bedroom or no, I, I, or yes, I got rid of the secret documents I held in my bedroom or no, I still have not gotten rid of the secret documents I held in my bedroom. Well, there's always a third option. I never had any secret documents in my bedroom. But the false dilemma phrases the question as if there's only two answers. And it really is, it's framing the argument. The person who asked this question, it's a dishonest question. It's framing the argument in order to favor her position. But she says, what's important, more Jesus or the church? Well, that presupposes that they can be separated. That's like saying, what's more important, Jesus, humanity, or his divinity? They can't be separated. So the way I would ask this question back to her is, well, what's more important, the fire or the heat? What's more important? Because I can, at Christmas time, I can turn on that channel that has the fake fireplace, the Yule log. Have you seen that channel, Ken? Yep, yep, yep. I know what you're talking about. But you walk up to the screen and you don't feel any heat. So it's not real fire. It's an image of fire. And why do you know that it's not real fire? Because there's no heat. Well, the same thing. You say that you follow Jesus. Okay? But Jesus says that I will build the church and it will be my arms and legs. And the church will be my body. The church will be my bride. And Jesus says the church will have the power to bind and loose. And what the church binds on earth will be bound in heaven. And what the church looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the question presupposes that I can, at the same time, follow Jesus while defying the church. Well, what did Jesus say of his church, Ken? He said, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So imagine that I was the boss of a company. And I had to go away on a business trip and said, okay, listen, while I'm gone, Ken Litchfield is in charge. Do what he tells you to do. Okay? And I come back and I hear all these stories of these people that said, look, I gave them their direction. I told them to do this project. I told them to do this. But they told me, I don't have to listen to Ken. He's not my boss. John is my boss. Well, John may be your boss, but I put Ken in charge. So by defying Ken, you are defying me. You're defying the church. You're defying Jesus. This is what Jesus said. And there's a lot of people that think that they're going to get away with that. And how did Jesus answer that? They will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many things in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. So trying to separate Jesus from his church is like trying to separate fire from heat. It's like trying to separate water from wet. It can't be done. It's an illusion. It's a false dilemma. Right. And you always need to remember that the church came before the Bible. Uh, And even like the Jews, you know, Protestants like to say that, well, the Jews already had their Old Testament, you know, before the Catholic Church established the Old Testament canon of Scripture. And they did not have a closed canon of their Old Testament Scriptures until around 134 A.D., that's when they finally closed their Old Testament canon of Scripture uh, after the Bar Kokhba revolt. So I ask Protestants, you know, why do you accept the Jewish uh, Old Testament canon when they didn't establish that until 100 years after Jesus ascended into heaven? Mm-hmm. And something else, Ken, that needs to be pointed out, and this is, this is kind of what's known as cognitive dissonance. And for your listeners that don't know what cognitive dissonance is, that's trying to hold two contradictory views in your mind at the same time. And we see Protestants do this all the time. James White, when James White argues his sola scriptura versus solo scriptura, 
It's like a textbook example of psychosis. It's the most incredible thing to sit there and watch James White debate with himself is basically what he's doing. Right. But this idea of cognitive dissonance, you're telling me that you follow the scripture that's established by the Council of Jamnia by the Jews, the same council that rejected the 27 books of the New Testament. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that I accept the church in the canon of scripture of the New Testament, but I reject the same church in the canon of scripture of the Old Testament. And people say that, well, there's nothing in the New Testament that harkens back to the Deuterocanonical book. Well, I would disagree. I'll give you just one example. When the Sadducees approached Jesus with a question of there were seven brothers and the seven brothers married this woman and each of them died. And, you know, whose wife would she be when she gets into heaven? Well, that's taken almost word for word from the book of Tobit. I would also argue, and we mentioned this also recently on your show, about Jeremiah. Jeremiah references Barak in his book. Well, why did they not recognize Barak as scripture? So they'll turn around and they'll say, well, you know, we agree with the Jewish Council of Jamnia in this case, but not in this case. So it's kind of a pick and choose a la carte menu kind of theology. Right. They point out the points in history that, you know, help justify their position without actually understanding what those councils were actually about. And basically, like Luther, you know, because he rejected the idea of purgatory and even the authority of the church to forgive sins, you know, he rejected like the books of the Maccabees and all the deuterocanonical books. Right. Because of his new theology that he had invented. Right. And so then Protestants after that have to come up with ways to confirm Luther, not to actually confirm the historical canon of the Bible. Right. So what they do is they create the theology first and then work back from there. They manipulate the facts to support the theology, not use the facts to create the theology. A perfect example of this, you mentioned earlier that Paul wrote 14 New Testament books. We don't have anything in the book of Hebrews that shows that Paul wrote that book. We only have church tradition that shows that Paul wrote that book. And yet, I'm confident enough and faithful enough in the church and the teachers and the doctors of the church to believe that Paul did in fact write Hebrews. But the same thing could be said about the gospel. None of the gospels explicitly state who the author is. None of them. None of the four. John kind of alludes to it. He kind of hints at it, but he doesn't come right out and say it. And the other three, I defy anyone outside of the church to tell me that Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark and Luke wrote Luke outside of the authority of the church and tell me what are the 27 books of the New Testament and in what order they should be, again, outside of the church. Show me that. So sole scriptura refutes itself because without the church, you can have no Bible. Without the church, you can have no canon of scripture. Right. Let's see. Irenaeus writes in 180 AD, you know, he confirms that, yes, Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and John wrote the Gospel of John. That was, you know, just part of the that's a written reference for the tradition that had been handed on in the church for, you know, 150 years at that time. Well, maybe not even that long because it'd be 140 years at least. Right, and, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be misunderstood here. You, know, We are affirming that Matthew did in fact write Matthew and Mark did in fact write Mark. We're not, we're not disputing. We're not disputing. We're not saying it's controversial. 
We're saying it's true. What we're saying is there's nothing in Scripture that tells you that it's true. We know that it's true because of the church, not because Mm -hmm. it states so in Scripture. Right. When it says the gospel according to Luke, you know, know, that's the uh, printer's or the copyists, you know, the editor words <laughs> added to the actual writings that Luke wrote. Right, that's the editor's comment or the foreword or what, or what have you that that we would see in a book today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, therefore, you know, like I've been saying, we don't have the Bible without the church. Uh, oh, Protestants, you know, do. <laughs> Uh, they have like this one trick where you know um, that Jude says that you know Peter's writings are scripture, and Peter says that uh, Paul's writings are scripture, and so therefore that's how we know the canon of scripture. Um, but that of course doesn't cover the Gospels, and how do you? It starts with a premise that Jude is scripture, and how do we know that Jude is scripture? So let me ask you something, Ken. Mm-hmm. Are, are you a leprechaun? Uh, no. <laughs> so if I say that Ken is a leprechaun, and Ken says that I'm a leprechaun, then we're both leprechauns, right? Right. <laughs> it's, using, it's the same logic. It, this is another logical fallacy. It's called the circular argument. Uh-huh. The scripture, scripture supports scripture, or scripture. You can't. I, I'm going to tell you something. I've heard Protestants argue with atheists. And when atheists say, well, you can't show me anything outside of the Bible that shows that it's the Word of God. Show me that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, it says it's the Word of God. Well, I'm sorry. I had it, it, I, I'm not agreeing with the ideology. I'm agreeing that the atheist won the debate in that case. He wins the, 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 the debate on substance because your argument is circular. Now, I do believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm not arguing that the Bible is the Word of God. What I'm arguing is the argument that you used to support that. Okay? I would argue that the Bible, as history, tells us of a church. It tells us of a church. It tells us of miracles. It tells us of a structure. It tells us of people, places, and things that we can verify existed. Testimonies that we can verify of things that happened. Okay? And mm-hmm. some of the events and things that happened prove Jesus was no ordinary person. But you have to have that church, and you have to have that history, and you have to have those miracles in order to attest to the veracity of Scripture. Augustine once said, I wouldn't even believe in the Scriptures if not first led there by the church. So if you're using the Bible to support the Bible, it, it's no more valuable than me saying that I'm Santa Claus. Well, how do I know right. that you're Santa Claus? Because I told you that I'm Santa Claus. And it's that kind of an argument. It's a circular argument. It's a logical fallacy. And uh, and, and you know, anybody using that kind of argumentation, they're not they're not proving their point. And again, we're not arguing against the inspiration of Scripture. We're not arguing against the in, the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. Okay, what we're arguing against is fallacious argument that you're using that scripture stands on its own. Because what you are then doing is you're making scripture into something that it wasn't. You're personifying scripture. You're even idolizing scripture because you're necessitating a situation where the Bible has to write itself, translate itself, canonize itself, find itself. Uh, if, if you've got a Bible that completely appeared out of nothing, it fell from the cloud, well, that's what you've done. You've turned the Bible into an idol. And, you know, people say, well, is the Bible the Word of God? Well, strictly speaking, no. The Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is an image of the Word of God. It's an image. It's a written record. The Word of God is a person, second person of the Trinity. Now, mm-hmm. is the Bible the written Word of God, the uh, textual Word of God? Yes, as long as it's written correctly, translated correctly, and interpreted correctly. But if any of those things is missing, 
then what you have is the word of man masquerading as the word of God. Right. And uh, one of the points that you brought up there, the interpreted correctly part is very key. And that's why there's so many different Protestant churches that claim to be going by the Bible alone, but it's always the Bible plus some guy's interpretation of the Bible, which is why they don't all agree on everything. I'll give you a little joke. Uh, I'm going to kind of show my age a little bit here. Um, do you remember a song that came out about 1979 called Gold by John Stewart? It had uh, Stevie Nicks sing backup on it. Okay, yeah. Okay. There, there's a line in that song me and, my, me and my wife used to joke about. And he says, my buddy Jim Bass makes a work makes a living pump and gas and he makes two fifty for an hour. Okay. Well, uh-huh. what is he saying? Is he saying he makes two fifty for an hour? Two dollars and fifty cents for an hour, or is he saying that he makes two fifty four an hour? Two dollars and fifty four cents. Okay. And it's kind of right. a corny joke. It's kind of a corny joke, but it can be interpreted both ways. Beautiful uh-huh. the author's intent then you can get it wrong. Now, you could say, well, he obviously meant this, and he obviously meant that. Well, maybe maybe it's obvious to you that he did mean this, and it's obvious. You know, me and and Luke were talking about this last night. The Protestants like to bring up a call no man father. Okay, well, Jesus was speaking hyperbole there. Oh, Jesus, Jesus never spoke hyperbole. Oh, he didn't? Jesus said, let, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is not speaking hyperbole there. When Jesus says, before you remove the speck from your neighbor's eye, remove the plank from your own eye. Jesus is not speaking hyperbole there. When Jesus says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, I'm pretty sure he was speaking hyperbole. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so... It needs to be understood in the context of the language that he said. Otherwise, if you don't understand the context of the language and you don't understand the type of language that Jesus is using, well, you're going to be in trouble when you read, when Jesus says, if your arm be thy fault, cut it off. If your eye be thy fault, pluck it out. (laughs) Because there's going to be a whole bunch of people plucking their eyes out and cutting their arms off because they don't understand hyperbolic language. And Jesus used hyperbole. It was it was a, a a usage of language that he used. If you don't understand that, the Bible is useless to you. If you don't understand what you're reading, and that's why we have a church. And the church will tell you, no, 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 no. Don't cut your arm off. Don't pluck your eye out. <laughs> Jesus is telling you, remove yourself from what is causing you to fall into sin. Mm-hmm. Yes, get that. You know, that visual image out of your eye, not the whole, not a plank out of your eye. <laughs> Although sometimes if you get something stuck in your eye, it feels like a plank. Well, yeah, and I have difficulty with that one. But the other one that's, that's even more difficult with me is swallowing the camel. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd even have difficulty swallowing a camel cigarette, let alone a whole camel. Right, right. Uh, but yes, you're right. You know, like in the lyrics of that song, you know, uh, unless you're actually reading the lyrics that the uh, lyricist wrote, you don't know if it's 250 F-O-R an hour or 254 F-O-U-R an hour. Right. Right. And, and it's, like I said, it's just a funny example. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, but it's just, it's, it's to make a point. You know that that it could be it could be the the, the language would allow it to be used both ways. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're blessed in the Catholic Church that you know we have a uh, an apostolic tradition that predates the words of the Bible, that helps us interpret the Bible, and then we also have the writings of the Church Fathers that help us interpret the Bible, uh, so that. Right. Uh, over the years, think, we have a consensus interpretation. Yeah, think about this. Okay, we're talking about this song. That's a song that's written in English. 
Now we add on to that the complexity of, okay, and like I said, me and Luke have been doing this series on Matthew. It's really fascinating, and I hope you get a chance to listen to it. But Matthew was most likely first written in Aramaic. We see that. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon or Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, that's Aramaic. Jesus cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that's Aramaic. Okay? So we have a gospel that was originally written in Aramaic, translated to Greek, then translated from Greek into Latin, and then translated from Latin into English. Right. Four translations before it gets to you in your King James Bible or whatever Bible translation that you're using. And, I mean, it's just naive to think that there's not going to be any complications or complexities during the course of all those translations. Right. And Greek words, you know, can often be more definitive in their definition than our English words. Like, you know, there's five different words for love in Greek, and we only have the word love, and then we have to understand which version of love we're talking about based on the context. I'll give you a classic example of what you're talking about, and this is one of the proof arguments that Protestants use against us. It's either Luke 11 or Luke 13. I get too confused. It's one of the two. I believe it's Luke 11, where a woman cries out from the crowd, blessed are you, or blessed are the, is the womb that held you and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Okay? So, mm-hmm. Protestants say, see, see, Jesus is diminishing his own mother. He said, oh, you think she's so blessed because she's my mother? No, Jesus is saying, no, the, 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 there's no blessing to being my mother. It's it's only those who hear the word of God and obey. Well, in the English language, the word rather has two different meanings, and they're kind of subtle in the English language. And rather, rather can be one of, of exclusion, so of contrast, or it can be one of, pre- of a preference. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Um, if you walk to the end of the hallway, and you turn right rather than left, you're going to run into a dead end. You're not going to be able to, to, to get out of the building. Okay? So that's one of contract. Uh-huh. This, this rather than that. One is right, one is wrong. Okay? On the other hand, I could also say, you know, I really like vanilla ice cream, but given the choice, I'd rather have chocolate. Right. So yep. one, one is better than the other. They're both good, but one is better than the other. So mm-hmm. in the Greek, there are actually two different words. And, and the one that's preference, which means, yes, that is so, but more than that, okay, is the word manonge. And that's the word that's being used here. So Jesus uh-huh. is actually affirming the woman saying, yes, you're correct. She is blessed because her womb held me and her breast nursed me. But even more than that are blessed those who hear the word of God and obey. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is giving his mother the same double blessing that Elizabeth gave him, gave her earlier in the same book. When you read Elizabeth's greeting to Mary, the first, the first greeting is, blessed are you, the mother of my Savior, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But then later she says, and blessed are you who heard the word of God and obeyed it. So Jesus is giving Mary the same double blessing that Elizabeth gave. But if you don't know the context of the word rather and the, and the word manonge, you, you use, this is going to be funny, you use this rather rather than that rather. How about right. that? <laughs> You'd rather use the wrong rather than the right rather. <laughs> right. I'd rather use the right rather than the wrong rather. Correct. Because right. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, have the chocolate ice cream than run into the wall. Right. Exactly. Well said. <laughs> and and I, I like your analogies, John. They're, they're really good. 
And uh, I was thinking of rather, I would rather have, you know, a chocolate chip cookie than a, you know, oatmeal raisin cookie. But I like both these. Yeah. I mean, you could say I'd rather have a $10 bill than a stick in the eye. I mean, it's a good way with it. Let's see. Uh, well, uh, this is perhaps a, a quick one since we're running out of time here. Um, Amy well, we Kay can always, just, yep. just so you know, we've got an hour live stream, but we could go up to an hour in the archives if, if necessary. So we can go over over the hour. The only thing is it won't be broadcasting live, which makes no difference in a, in a we're doing a private show. So that makes no difference. Anything we don't like, we can edit out. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll just do this one here, and then we'll call it a day. Okay. Um, how can Amy Kay asks? How can we believe in the infallibility of popes when studying the history of the Church in the 1300s and the sexual abuse cover-ups of the 20th century? I'm new to the faith, and I'm seeking understanding. So um, I responded to her. That the Pope is infallible in matters of faith and morals when he speaks officially from his office as Pope. Jesus' church of 12 disciples had one of them betray him. People are, people are people with free will to choose to love God or do evil. Jesus promised to be with his church until the end of the age in Matthew chapter 28. And in Acts chapter 15, the church gave a binding decree that was protected by the Holy Spirit. And as early as 90 AD, the church in Corinth had a problem and wrote to the church in Rome for help. The bishop of Rome, Pope Clement, wrote that the church in Corinth should listen to the delegation he was sending to them and to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit and the church in Rome. So the church, you know, well, Jesus, you know, 12 apostles, one of them that he picked was Judas, and Judas betrayed him. And so the church has always had bad people in it, but the church has always been protected by the Holy Spirit. And it's the only institution that's been around for 2,000 years uh, everything, every other great institution has come and gone, but Jesus Church perseveres because of our protection by the Holy Spirit. So, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say. Amy, <laughs> yeah, I would say, Amy, you're you're not seeing the forest for the trees here. What the point that you illustrated is exactly why we need infallibility. It is exactly the reason for infallibility. Um, because uh, let's talk about let's talk about the um, Israel of the Old Testament. Would you say there were a few a few wicked kings in the Old Testament, Ken? Yes, um, you know if you study the history of Israel, <laughs> right. you'll, you'll find that they've. You take Rehoboam's famous line: "My father beat you with whips; I will beat you with scorpions." Nice guy. <laughs> and, and yet, do we believe that the same Ten Commandments that we received from Moses are still the same Ten Commandments today? We do. Mm -hmm. That's infallibility. Infallibility is the inability, it's, it's actually the inability of the church to find us in doctrines uh, that, that violate uh, uh, Faith and morals. Okay? So, the Pope may be a bad person. We've had a few bad Popes, maybe five or six, you know, bad Popes. The Pope may be a bad person, but he can't bind the church in them. The Pope may be an adulterer, but he can't pass a new commandment, thou shalt commit adultery. The Pope may be a murderer, but he can't pass a new commandment, thou shalt commit murder. That's why infallibility is necessary, because Infallibility shows that the church is, at the same time, a human and a divine institution. Because if it were just a, merely a human institution, it couldn't have survived for 2,000 years. 
And it is infallibility that is that has enabled the church to survive through some of those bad periods. Because let's not even talk about bad folks. Let's not even talk about bad people. Let's talk about good people who just make the wrong decision, make the wrong judgment, or or just interpret a situation the wrong way. I mean, that happens to all of us. Uh, and yet the Holy Spirit protects us from that. And if it didn't, there's no way in the world that I could believe that the New Testament that I have now is worth anything at all. If we're not for the uh, infallibility of the new church, uh, of the church. Because when the, when the church tells me infallibly that Matthew is gospel, I know that it's gospel. And it tells me that Hebrews is a divine book, and I know that it's a divine book. And there's no way, uh, I would argue, outside of the church, that human beings would have determined that Hebrews was inspired scripture. I don't believe anybody would have, you know, we don't even know who wrote it. So we would mm -hmm. not have arrived at that position, you know, by ourselves. So that's why infallibility is necessary, because the church is run through fallible human beings. And that's why God can't put an authority in place unless he is going to uh, protect that authority uh, from error. And, and we see this in Matthew 16. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We see this in Luke chapter six, uh, 10, verse 16. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. Uh, otherwise, if, if, if there's no infallible authority, there's no source of truth that we can go to and know that we're going to get the right answer, well, we're all lost. We're all, in, we're all in a great deal of trouble. Right. And the... That's why the Catholic Church teaches that the Pope is, you know, can teach infallibly, um, but it doesn't teach that, you know, everything that the Pope says is automatically an infallible teaching of the Catholic right. Church. And one other point that I want to make real quickly is that Amy is confusing infallibility with impeccability. Impeccability is the inability to sin. Infallibility is the inability to bind in, in false teachings on uh, doctrines of faith and morals. Now, it's only on doctrines of faith and morals. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, don't go put $100 down because, you know, the Pope said that Notre Dame is going to beat Ohio State. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's not infallible on that, okay? Right. Um, <laughs> But, and, and it's also, uh, impeccability is, you know, we do not believe the Pope is, is impeccable. Popes go to confession just like the rest of us. They're, they're you know, they, they are human beings. They're frail human beings, and that's why infallibility is necessary. Infallibility is not some magical power granted to the Pope. It's a negative protection. It's a limitation put on the Pope for the benefit of the flock. Right. And Jesus talked about how, you know, um, the Jews of his of that time, you know, should listen to the scribes and Pharisees that sit on the chair of Moses. But he said, do what they tell you to do, but don't live the way they actually live. Excellent. Excellent, excellent point. That is a demonstration of infallibility right there. He says, they sit in the chair of Moses, so you must do everything they tell you to do. Just don't follow their example. So, and it is a, a, an amazingly paradoxical situation that you may be required to listen and follow all the directions of a person who, in many ways, has lost himself um, because you know he, he, he you know he knows the doctrine, he follows the doctrine. In fact, that's why Jesus railed against them worst of all because they knew the truth. It was, their, it was the absence of love in their heart. It was their hypocrisy that he railed against uh, the most. But, uh, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's one of these paradoxical things of an of a institution that's both human and divine, and it's very, very difficult to comprehend sometimes. 
but it's also the glue that binds the whole thing together because if we don't have a central infallible authority, we're all on our own. We're all, you know, islands to ourselves. And uh, that doesn't seem to me, to me to be a very good uh, recipe strategy for finding truth. Amen. So we'll wrap up the show for today. Thanks for joining me, John, and uh, to add your input. It really helps, uh, I think, give people a, a larger spectrum of, to the answers and the things like that. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can, or you have a follow-up question, you can email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. And the Catholic Ken is Catholic with a K. And the four persons is the, the number four, persons.com. If you'd like to have me come speak at your parish or on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the whole world. God bless. Have a great weekend. God bless. Bye-bye.